Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Jeff Chi, Global Head of Portfolio Strategy at Willis Towers Watson. Morning. Morning. How are you going? Very well, thank you. I thought today our conversation would come back to something that's sort of a, uh, a sacrosanct sort of area in, in uh, portfolio theory, which is this balanced portfolio, this 60-40 portfolio that is like the reference portfolio that everyone uses. And I wanted to ask you, is this experiment around the balanced fund you know, over? given where we are in today's market? Um, it, it's a good question. I mean, I don't think that it's you know, over per se, but I think what, it, what you know, we, if you think about the last decade and you know, everyone's kind of done the numbers on this, you know, we've had the best um, decade for the 60-40 portfolio, the confluence of declining bond yields and you know, the ramp in equity markets has meant that people have very comfortably achieved their objectives holding you know, something like 60-40 you know, um, invested in a relatively simplistic way. And I think, where we are in, at, at the moment is that, that that model is just going to be a lot more challenged going forward. And so what I really think people need to be doing at the moment is, you know, I think having that as a reference point is still useful, but then thinking about, you know, how, how am I going to be able to um, exploit different levers in order to add, add value relative, um, relative to that? And in particular, you know, what, what paradigm, what framework am I going to use in order to articulate, you know, how, why would I exploit certain... Um, certain sources of value add, how am I going to allocate risk um, to those different opportunities? And also, you know, thinking outside the um, the square of or the the, the the binding constraints of a strictly asset allocation expressed in the traditional way of, you know, X percent to a whole lot of asset class and thinking more holistically in terms of, you know, what, what portfolio do I want to hold at a given point in time? So it's not that, I don't think the 60-40 is dead. I think as a, as a construct and concept, we still kind of, it's still useful. But it's more thinking about, you know, from here, it's probably not going to get you to your objectives. So thinking more, more generally about, you know, how am I going to add value and, and, and why and, and, and the, um, the justification for that. So I guess if we, if we use a 60-40 then as this reference of where we want to get to and we can map that to our, our objectives, you know, how do you build a portfolio in this type of market where, you know, we, we've got some some very overvalued parts of of the economy. You know, the the, the equities component, obviously, in, in capital markets, and and even question marks around fixed interest. You know, as as you look at that backdrop and these being the inputs to the portfolio, you know, how how do you feel that you, know, you think about SAA and what you want to achieve from objective point of view, but then take it back to sort of the reality of today, um, and then how do you map those two together? Yeah, so I, mean, I think that the way that I like to think about, you know, portfolio construction or, or, or portfolio design is, as you say, you know, let's again, let's take 60-40. So 60-40, generally speaking, um, you know, you'll, you'll generally map that to kind of a risk target. So you might say, you know, I'm, I'm happy you know, in, a, in, a, in a poor market environment, I'm happy to, you know, wear something like 6% of the equity drawdown. And then it's really about, you know, trying to compare different investment opportunities. And to your point, you know, there are these you know, overvalued parts of the market. So equities is, is one that, that, that we can point to, particularly with the, the recent re-ramp in equities, um, pockets of fixed income, um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, trying to think about the different dimensions of portfolio quality that you might want to assess. So you, you've got your traditional 
um, risk and return type dimension. So you can kind of capture that overvaluedness in your in your return assumptions in particular for, for equities and, and certain overvalued parts of the market. Um, also on the risk side, we need to think about, you know, are risks elevated at the moment? And also, you know, how are you actually measuring um, that risk? You know, is it in a traditional volatility sense or are we in an environment where we are going to um, have an elevated, you know, elevated probability of these big sharp drawdowns when bad news comes through? Or, you know, I think that the whole um, COVID has really uh, highlighted that, you know, particularly when, when markets are sort of at elevated valuations, but even when they're not, there's a wide variety of um, triggers for drawdowns in equity markets, a lot of which are difficult to anticipate in advance. And so it really just highlights the need to then augment this traditional kind of, you know, risk return um, mindset with considerations of, you know, the diversity of a portfolio. So just fundamentally, you know, how exposed are you to different things that drive return? Because that's going to be, uh, you know, kind of, a, you know, whether you want to call it a risk factor lens, return, a return driver lens, you, you know, using that kind of framing can help you to, you know, like two portfolios that have similar risk and return characteristics, one that is just fundamentally less exposed to any one in, one particular driver is going to be more resilient to an unexpected shock coming through markets. And then also, you know, the other kind of lenses of, of kind of portfolio quality. So whether it be, you know, the liquidity of the portfolio, that's obviously um, been, been an important issue lately. You know, costs matter, um, complexity, you know, to, to what extent are you kind of able to, you know, absorb or, you know, um, kind of deal with uncertainty around kind of assumptions that you're setting. And really the, what you can do, you know, it, a, a lot of this sounds kind of fluffy and, and kind of wishy-washy, but, you know, you can actually quantify a lot of these things and kind of, you know, rank these various characteristics of strategies against each other. And, and what you can do is then, you know, then once, you, once, you've kind of, once you've kind of quantified these things, you can actually then say, right, what is my trade-off between liquidity and complexity and costs and diversity? And by doing that and kind of, you know, whether you want to do it in terms of a balanced scorecard, so we use a construct called a portfolio quality scorecard where we kind of rank each of these things against each other. I think that is a much better and more holistic way of building a portfolio because then you can sort of say, you know, equities, for example, if I wanted to underweight equities, what are the other things that I could do? And I can sort of test different configurations of bringing, you know, different strategies into the portfolio and sort of see, you know, if I, you know, it reduces risk, but it increases my cost base or, you know, it improves diversity and, and you know, how happy do I feel about that? And by by weighting, you know, those different dimensions of portfolio quality in accordance with, you know, a particular investor's beliefs, you can then better explain how you get there and make sure that the sources of value add and your the levers that you pull are, you know, in line with your beliefs, your endowments, your competitive advantages, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's stick on, on the risk component, right? And uh, I guess one of the biggest challenges with, with the overvaluation in a number of parts of, of the market is that, your investors feel concerned that they need to take increasing levels of risk to get the sort of return that they used to get. But you know, how how's how do you think about risk in terms of measuring it, trying to forecast the amount of risk that you're taking in the portfolio? You know, how how do you factor in sort of you know this maybe potentially suppressed volatility that we've seen in a number of asset classes, particularly as we've seen sort of Fed support to to some of parts of fixed interest and sort of the support to equities market. You know, if you just sort of look at a historical level of risk, you know, is that really a representative way of risk going forward? You know, how, how do you guys um, build that into your portfolios? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And, you know, a lot of the traditional models that, you know, use historical rolling windows to measure risk will, will give you sort of, as you say, sort of quite um, potentially quite misleading answers on the risk side. I mean, I think the, the first and most obvious thing is to kind of 
take a, a long view of risk. So essentially, the, the risk of an asset class will be a function of the economic regime that, that, that you're kind of looking at. And if you, know, if you did look at the last you know, the period um, since, the, since the GFC, we, we have had this period of this, this regime of um, extreme policy support um, you know, and, and, and therefore suppressed volatility. Uh, but that's just one regime. There have obviously been other regimes um, where we've had quite elevated volatility. So I think the first thing to do is to sort of think about, you know, what are the different regimes that could occur and what, is, what have been the volatility characteristics of um, asset classes in those regimes and then recognise that there is a probability that we move out of this current regime of suppressed volatility into one of those other regimes and, and therefore you can then directly incorporate that into your, you know, your asset allocation models or your portfolio construction framework um, by sort of saying, right, you know, in, 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 this, in this sort of regime, this is the sort of portfolio we're on a hold uh, in this other regime where there's maybe there's either higher volatility or the increased propensity for, you know, for, for kind of spiky left tail events, this is the portfolio we want to hold. And then you then need to make a judgment call about how do I then blend these together, whether you use a probabilistic framework or you think about it in terms of portfolio flexibility, like I need to be able to um, fairly quickly switch from a portfolio that's designed from this environment to this environment, um, and, and then that might dimension you know, how much liquidity you need in a portfolio, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Look, the investors talk all the time about sort of building portfolios with diversification, you know, and, and the typical portfolios have got equities, bonds, real assets, and so forth. But you know, the the reality that we sit in this in this environment is that some of these assets aren't going to provide the defensive hedge that they used to. You know, and, and correlations are. are quickly becoming close to one and when you get into any sort of crisis environment if we if we take it back to the 60 40 or building an SAA you know how do, how do we need to maybe rethink this environment or do we need to re, rethink this sort of structure that we've that we've got in terms of building an SAA and then sort of building the buckets or do we need something else I think it's a bit of both I mean I I, I agree completely that you know the a lot of the traditional ways of thinking about diversification in a portfolio in terms of, you know, assumes correlations being less than one and therefore the risk reduction of having these other asset classes in there. You're right, in, in, a, in a crisis environment, you just, you know, you see the classic, you know, in inverted commas, failure of diversification. And so I think the first thing to do is that um, it's important to augment any framework that relies on kind of you know, quantitative um, assessment of diversification um, to kind of do that modeling also and in, uh, under a set of downside assumptions because what that can then tell you is, you know, let's say, let's just use equity beta of a portfolio as a very rough and ready measure of the amount of diversification you expect. So let's say a traditional investor is looking for about a 0.5, 0.6 um, equity beta. That will typically go up to something like 0.7 or 0.8 in a downturn. So first thing to do is just quantify that and understand that and go think about, you know, in that downside because the whole reason for having diversification is predicting the downside. Am I happy with that? And if not, then it comes to your second question. It's like, well, what do you need to do differently uh, in order to mitigate or manage the fact that your equity correlation will tend to increase uh, in a downturn? And that, that is when you can think about, you know, um, for an Aussie investor, typically foreign exchange uh, will act as a downside risk management tool. So, you know, you, you sort of tend to see the Aussie um, acting in the opposite direction to equity markets. So what you could say is say, right, if my equity beta is or, or my risk is increasing from A to B, how much foreign exchange do I need in order to at least partly partly offset or partly mitigate that? Or you know, duration is enough of maybe perhaps not at current yields, but in a more um, in a more normalised environment, how much duration might I want to have in a portfolio again to help to mitigate um, that that kind of that um, that downturn? And are there other risk management strategies that, that I might want to consider? So whether it be 
long volatility options, noting that those are you know, long-term you know, negative carries. So perhaps you don't want to have them strategically, but at least to be aware that they are things that can be added to the toolkit and understanding at what point in time in the cycle and what sort of conditions might, I, and, and think about this in advance so that then you're ready to kind of act and, and have these strategies um, you know, deployed again in order to try and you know, manage, manage that, that decrease in diversification and stress environment. Let, let's uh, stick to the, the conversation you sort of uh, mentioned about long volatility, right? This this is a is a fascinating one. I've seen it popped up a lot. Um, there's been a, a few papers around that, you know, the 60-40 moves to this 2020-2020, whatever, 5-20 breakup of equity, bonds, real assets, gold, and long volatility. And you've mentioned long volatility. I was curious to get your thoughts on on sort of the role that long volatility can potentially play and your thoughts more broadly in terms of maybe a different structure, you know, moving away from 60-40 to something different um, that can that can survive through different regimes, as, as you were sort of mentioning as well. Yeah, I mean, on long volatility, I think that, I mean, my personal, my, my, my prior is that, you know, long volatility, because the volatility risk premium is positive, long volatility structurally in a portfolio will be, you know, as I mentioned before, negative carry so it strikes me as something that you don't want to kind of hold you might not you maybe maybe you don't want to hold in a portfolio um, from a strategic perspective obviously there are certain investors who are particularly those who are particularly path dependent who are, who are close to um, critical thresholds who might find that you know they're willing to pay away something uh, over the long term in order to have that that protection so my my personal view is definitely that long volatility strategies have a place in the broad toolkit but are unlikely to to have a kind of long-term strategic place in a portfolio, uh, unless you are an investor who's you know, particularly sensitive to um, to tower risk and has a short horizon, so you wouldn't be able to kind of recover. Um, but then coming back to your question around you know, a, a different um, portfolio structure or a different portfolio design, you know, I, I, I completely agree that you know, I think going forward, um, this what's just happened has really highlighted the need to sort of think about portfolios in a much more, you know, how do I build a resilient portfolio that's diver- that's diversified across a wide range of, um, of strategies? And I, I think not even thinking about it in terms of like, you know, 60-40 or 20-20-20-20, but just thinking about it in terms of what are all the investment opportunities that could sit within my, that, that what the investment strategies that sit within my opportunity set based on my, my endowments and my governance and my capabilities and then kind of assembling them in a way that, you know, maximises, you know, deals with this this equity beta increase that I just talked about maximizes um, portfolio quality. And it could be that it comes out at like, you know, 2020, 2020 for a particular investor who's a set of, you know, beliefs around diversification, has a particular ability to tolerate the illiquidity risk associated with a lot of real asset strategies, the complexity associated with long bowl and 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 so on and so forth. But perhaps for some investors, having gone through that process and having, you know, done relevant trade-offs, you could still end up at 60-40. But I think the point is that you've got a properly articulated process that considers all of the things that you that all of the dimensions of portfolio quality weights those appropriately and then gets you to a portfolio rather than 60-40 being the starting point. I guess is 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 what I would is where I'd be starting at. Mm-hmm. I guess in the Australian marketplace, there's a, there's an additional challenge, right? And that and that's almost a, uh, an unforeseen risk, which is the government the government risk being early access. So I wanted mm-hmm. to sort of ask the question, you know, you, you, you sort of talked about tail risk and I know I've spoken to a number of asset owners have sort of not, not been focused on it because they say we're long-term investors, you know, we don't need it, we can afford to ride, ride these pieces out. But when you have a situation where 
you know, a crisis results in members switching, you know, either switching out of the fund or switching to cash or even a government uh, intervention, you could say, where there's the early release, you know, does this mean that tail risk hedging becomes even more critical to, to the funds? Um, I mean, it certainly highlights the importance, and, and not to sort of try and uh, t- turn the question around to something different, it's a, it, but maybe we'll come back to it, it certainly highlights the importance of liquidity stress testing and making sure that you've got um, scenarios that you know incorporate the potential for member switching in a downturn and now you know the, the, the potential for um, regulatory change to also trigger outflows from funds. But to, to, uh, to, to get to around, around tail risk hedging, I don't think it's necessarily around tail risk hedging per se. I mean, obviously, um, in what just in, in the environment that we've just had, if, if you did have, you know, reasonable outflows from, from early release or member switching at the same time assets were depressed, then clearly um, that's, that's a bad outcome because you're, you're then not able to potentially able to ride that recovery. So from that perspective, it, it kind of does highlight that that tail risk hedging would have been useful in, in that sort of situation. But I don't think that, that I don't think it highlights that tail risk hedging was any more important than it was before. I think it's just reminded people that it was important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, make make makes sense. So let, let's also then dig into the you know the objectives in terms of return. You know, the you talked about sort of the the process and the and the inputs that you need to build this portfolio. You know, a number of the funds have been moving to unlisted because of the returns that, that it generates. But then there's been a lot of questions about the liquidity issues that come with it and the potential hidden risks that sit behind some of these unlisted assets because they're not being valued on a daily uh, basis or, you know, it, it's it's quite delayed. So, you know, I guess, how do you think about um, a lot of the, you know, the, the influence and a lot, a lot of the um, positivity around sort of the unlisted space to deliver returns? I certainly think that there's, you know, there, there is definitely a, a a strategic case for having unlisted assets in, in in a portfolio. You know, from from a number of perspectives. One, uh, just the the diversifying return stream that's associated with you know real assets compared to uh, corporate assets. Um, you know, that you should, assuming that you've you've paid an appropriate price for the asset, there should be an illiquidity risk premium associated with with, with buying um, illiquid assets. Um, but I think the question then comes down to to what extent do you want to rely on that in order to achieve your objectives? Because, you know, whilst we talk about, we might talk about, you know, real assets being a different return stream to, um, to say, corporate equity or, or corporate credit or the illiquidity risk premium being a return driver to our previous conversation, those, they're generally still pro-cyclical, generally still going to have this, uh, this, this characteristic of increasing correlation with equities uh, in a downturn. And therefore, that should kind of, either it needs to, either I think it either needs to, um, temper the extent to which you want to go really hard down the, the illiquids um, path as a way of um, diversifying away from equity risk, or at a minimum, making sure that you apply, you know, that, that you're getting, you're applying a sensible hurdle framework for taking on illiquidity risk. And in particular, and this is something that I don't see very often, that that hurdle framework applies an increasing hurdle and increasing penalty to illiquidity as you have as you add more illiquidity to the portfolio. So. For example, let's say you were, let's say your starting point was sixty listed equities, forty liquid bonds. The first one percent I put into say uh, infrastructure, real estate, probably not much of a hurdle to get that into the portfolio. But once I'm out at say twenty or thirty percent in the liquids, that 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 hurdle, that benchmark, should be pretty high. Mm-hmm. No, no, it makes makes a, makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, 
I guess that's one of the, the questions around hurdles. And you, you talked about the pro-cyclicality of a lot of these asset classes. Does that mean that we now need to start thinking of uh, other sorts of defensive uh, assets or strategies? You know, a lot of work's been done in the alternative space. You know, is there now a, a particular um, pathway for maybe more long short being included in portfolios or something like that or, or um, momentum strategies? You know, how do you think about sort of maybe these alternative pieces as being um, a better hedge? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one thing that we did see, and you know, again, we don't want to sort of harp on Q1 as and, and really major in on that, but you know, we, we did see that in Q1, a lot of those you know alternative strategies, particularly the one, particularly if you looked at say um, hedge fund or diversifying strategies portfolios that were that were designed from a total portfolio perspective, i.e., thinking about what is the purpose of this in the portfolio? It is to diversify equity risk in a crisis. If you built a portfolio appropriately from that perspective as opposed to just sort of saying, well, I just want a broad mix of hedge funds or alternative betas or quant systematic stuff. Those, those portfolios actually did really quite well in, 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 in that sort of environment. And also, they're the sorts of strategies that you expect to be positive carry, positive expected return uh, in a normal environment. So, you know, I think the experience of hedge funds in 2008, 2009 really sort of turned a lot of people, um, a lot of investors in, 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 in our market away from kind of hedge funds and other liquid diversifying strategies. But I think that, you know, we, we as a house, and I personally have always thought of, of it as being a strong strategic case for having um, liquid diversifiers in, in, in a portfolio and, um, and continue to think that side. And, and, and in particular, as thinking about which slice of those strategies do I want in this portfolio from a total portfolio perspective, recognising that I don't need to hold the broad range of hedge funds, the broad range of alt betas. What I want is that subset, which is you know positive long-term expected return, and two is the stuff that's actually going to diversify my portfolio in in, in a downturn. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as you were, as you were discussing that and these alternatives. Is there is there merit in in creating a portfolio of just strategies? There, as we think, there's a lot of discussion around building portfolios for people in retirement, and the focus is around sort of capital preservation with this ability to generate income. Um, so, I was just curious, you know, when you start to talk about you know strategies and all these alternatives, you know, could you potentially build a portfolio of say five different strategies to to create a an outcome that preserves capital and potentially can can then spin off some income? You know, let's say it's got uh, momentum, it's got some other value factor. It's got uh, long short. You know, is, is that another way to think about portfolio construction? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it's it kind of links to to what I was saying earlier around um, maximizing portfolio quality and and sort of getting away from SAA in terms of being you know, allocating to asset class or asset class buckets. I I, I think the um you know the the ultimate um, dream from a portfolio construction perspective would actually be to think about you know what are the different strategies I put into this portfolio and and why. And then to assemble it in that way, rather than sort of saying, right, you know, right, this is a momentum strategy. It must sit in the in the hedge fund bucket. This is, you know, a long short. This is a you know a low vol equity strategy with um, with you know dividend focus that must sit in the equity bucket. It, yes, it's to your point. What is the what is the outcome that I want here, and what it is? It's something that I I still need. Let's say I still need CPI plus three, but I need to protect because of sequencing risk because it's because it's a retiree, and also in particular dividend stream. And then when you're assessing the efficacy of adding different strategies into the portfolio, you, you then test, you know, do, does adding this momentum strategy, what does that do? Right, it helps to, it helps to mitigate an equity downturn. That gets a tick. Uh, this, this equity strategy, you know, it, it, it's yield-driven. It's going to be less volatile than just investing in 
ASX 200 or, or, or MISCI or country, that gets a tick, et cetera, et cetera. So I think thinking about it from a strategy perspective rather than an asset class perspective is exactly the way that you can, in fact, design a portfolio to give you the return, pro, the return distribution profile or the, you know, the income pad or whatever characteristics it is that, that, that you want out of it. And then you're not hamstrung by having to say, oh, it's, it doesn't fit in a bucket, therefore I can't have this in the portfolio. Mm-hmm. How much do you feel that the, the whole peer risk, especially in the Australian um, super fund space, has, is, is limiting, I guess, the, the willingness of funds to sort of think outside the box to, to, to use a, a common analogy? You know, is, is that really the biggest issue as to why we haven't seen much difference? You know, I, I've looked at a number of uh, portfolios of funds that have even claimed to, to have a TPA and they've got their total portfolio approach. But when you start to look into it, it doesn't look any different to an SAA. You know, is, I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that piece and also in terms of the, this whole peer risk issue that maybe is, is limiting these funds to sort of you know, go out on a limb and, a di- and try different strategies like we've just talked about. Yeah, great question. And I, I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, the just and, you know, the whole increasing focus on, you know, comparisons, whether it be via league tables or pressure from the regulator and the kind of naming and shaming that's kind of happened recently, all these things are kind of really intensifying the, the concern that, you know, that trustee boards, investment committees, uh, internal investment teams kind of have on peer relative outcomes. And I think absolutely, you know, once, once you elevate peer risk in the, in the mindset, that can be, it's unavoidable that's going to have an impact on, on behaviours and, um, and, and portfolio allocation decisions. So I think absolutely the increased focus on peer risk, I think, which, you know, is partly probably is partly self-imposed in terms of like, you know, you always want to compare yourself to other people who are doing similar things to you. Partly is, has been imposed by, you know, the, um, the increased focus on, of it by, by the regulator is absolutely meaning that, you know, I think um, Australian super funds aren't able to innovate or to expand their horizons as, 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 as widely as possible. That said, you know, I think that if I was going to try and articulate why, if I was running a, a portfolio, why I would worry about peer risk, I think there is, a legitimate argument which kind of runs along the following lines. So the reason why any asset owner kind of exists, so any, why any superannuation fund show exists is because they have the, the internal capability, the governance, the skill to outperform a simpler alternative. So let's say let's say it's 60-40 is, is kind of the reputable portfolio alternative. Um, and if you legitimately back yourself to have skill and genuinely think that you are improving end saver outcomes by adding value relative to that reference portfolio, what you don't want to happen is for you to underperform and for that end saver to essentially fire you um, before you're then able to add value over the long term. So from that perspective, it's, it, I, I think the, the, the peer risk conversation or the business risk conversation, I think, I think can legitimately be thought about in that context. It's about making sure that um, behavioural issues don't cause uh, end savers to not be able to benefit from the long-term benefits of, of your investment process and your investment skill but not comparisons against other people for, for kind of comparison's sake. Mm-hmm. So let's let's continue back on the on the conversation around portfolio construction, the process, the investment decision-making process. What do you see when you talk with clients as being maybe one of the, the biggest challenges that's out there or, or, or a misstep that funds are thinking about as they go through that process? You know, what, what, is there an ingredient that's missing or something that they could do better? Um, I think... Certainly, I, I'm well. So yeah. So if, if I sort of think about the sorts of things that I think could be improved, I think one is just a real 
over focus on on um, you know outputs from stochastic asset models and you know risk return kind of outcomes and, and and things like that. So obviously we need models, and I've spent most of my career messing around with asset models and setting assumptions. And so, but you know the more you do that, the more you realise um, that the limitations of using that to in, to inform um, decision making. And so so what what we tend to find is that you know you'll go to um, an investor or a client with a with a recommendation around you know adding a particular strategy to their portfolio. So we think you should add, um, you know this this um, liquid diversifier to the portfolio. You know reduce reduce equities by X or whatever it is that that, that you recommend. And and the question will come back. Uh, show me the modeling outcomes and and kind of you know what it does. And and you show the modeling outcomes and inevitably if it's a kind of you know two or three percent shift, modeling outcomes don't move that much. And the answer comes back. Well, why would I do that? Um, and so what I do think, in, and it comes back to, to um, something that, that's come up a few times in this conversation, is it's that holistic consideration of, of portfolio quality and using a balanced scorecard type approach to assess portfolios, I think is something that investors should be doing a lot more of. It's something that, you know, it's, it's most TPA investors do it. Um, it's something we're sort of starting to see more of, but I, I think it can be, you know, it should be a lot more widespread, you know, the, the use of um, you know, some sort of portfolio quality or balanced scorecard to assess the portfolio and then to assess different potential portfolio configurations rather than a really, you know, deep granular sort of, you know, what's the, what's the modeling impact and, you know, does it move the sharp ratio around and stuff like that? Because that's, that's not the only thing you need to consider. So I think, you know, invest, I think that would be my main um, what thing that I would, that I would like to see uh, as an enhancement to, to most investors' uh, processes. Yeah, the, the, the whole conversation about sharp, it's something that we learn at university, uh, you know, we, we're drilled into our head about sort of the efficiency that comes with sharp and, and thinking about risk. You know, ironically, in the textbook, they talk about sort of normal distributions. Uh, and a lot of these stochastic models are based on normals or, or, or T distributions that, you know, are seen to be pretty, pretty stable. But in the reality is that doesn't exist. So it does disturb me that they keep asking for these uh, modeling outcomes, you know, where they know that this is not really going to be the case, or maybe they, they're they're ignorant to it. I, I'm not sure what the, what the answer is, but you know, the, I guess the the concern that then comes is it's everybody. If everybody's using these same modeling solutions, we end up with this peer risk problem, and we end up actually with crowding in trades. So everyone seems to do the same thing. You get this overvaluation, and you see these big pendulums of of money just swinging in and swinging out, and it's causing more and more problems. Is is that how you see it? Yeah, I yeah, I, I a lot of what you just said absolutely resonates resonates with me. I think that yeah, the the yeah, the over reliance on and the um, sort of almost leaning on the fact that the model will kind of you know tell you everything that you that it needs to tell you, and then I'm I'm not sure if so so that that definitely I I see as as an issue, and you know the you know, more use of scenario testing or thinking about you know even sensitive testing your assumptions at least to kind of deal with the the uncertainty, not just around, you know, the volatility of the returns and therefore the risk around that, but just the fact that you don't actually know what the mean of volatility distribution is kind of handling that. I'm not sure if um, people using using the same frameworks is necessarily a thing that, that is causing um, crowded trades. I think that is probably more a peer risk thing, which is, which as we, we just discussed, kind of the, the, the rationale for that. But I, I do think that um, you know the use of traditional asset models and the lack of. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think it's an, an ignorance thing, but just the. You know, just the the lack of interrogation of those outcomes and the understanding of the sensitivity of those outcomes to different assumptions we put in there certainly is causing people to have portfolios that aren't as you know aren't as diverse and aren't as resilient as they should be. Mm-hmm. It's been a fantastic conversation, Jeff. Thank you very much for your time today. Not a problem at all. Pleasure.
Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.